0: Hello and welcome to this first episode in the Road to ADAPEC series by Energy Voice, brought to you by DMG Events. The UAE will be at the heart of the global dialogue on the future of energy, as policymakers and energy leaders from around the world gather in Abu Dhabi from the 31st of October to the 3rd of November 2022 for Adipec, the world's most influential forum for the energy industry. I'm Ed Reed, an editor at Energy Voice, and I'm joined today by Mark Brownstein, Senior Vice President of Energy at the Environmental Defense Fund. This series is going to feature a number of interviews with the big thinkers like Mark of Energy as we head towards ODIPEC. And this first episode is going to look at the role of industry and government, how they can work together, how there might be room for improvement as we aim to tackle that energy trilemma. The energy trilemma, for those who are still coming up to speed, is how we attempt to tackle the three big challenges, security, affordability and sustainability. We're living through a period of incredible transformation in the energy industry and it's continuing even as we speak. It's remarkable to think back a couple of years to the early days of 2020 when we were still coming to terms with what COVID-19 might mean. With oil prices now high and, and gas prices higher of course, it's extraordinary to think of a time when oil, or, or WTI at least, was negatively priced and LNG seemed like an affordable energy import. There was a real point of existential uncertainty for the hydrocarbon industry, I kind of a question of, was this the end? Now, obviously, things look very different. We're at a point when Europe's winter supply situation looks uncertain and it's clear that the rumoured end of oil and gas, and, and even coal, was premature. The last nine months have seen a, a fascinating reversion in, this, in these historic energy flows. Europe now is hungry for all the LNG in particular it can find, and, and is also building out new capacity with an increasingly interventionist state support. And European demand has a global impact. Emerging markets in Asia that had been set to take more LNG are being priced out, and there's new competition to find additional sources of gas. The Middle East, Africa, North America, all keen to play a part. But among this snap back to hydrocarbons, we've also seen new questions around sustainability. The progress that we were seeing in terms of a shift to a lower carbon world now maybe seems at least in peril. Furthermore, there appears to be some possibility that countries faced with this sort of systemic energy challenge may be rethinking climate goals and even net zero. Mark, the world's changed in the last 12 months. Do you think we can still achieve net zero? The world has
1: changed quite a bit, Ed. Um, Where uh, The crisis in Ukraine reminds us of just how perilous overdependence on oil and, in Europe's case, gas can be to economic security and energy security. So I think in answer to your question, is sustainability still on the agenda? I think it is because I think one of the lessons that many economies are learning is that energy security comes from diversifying away from over on gas, away from overdependence on oil, and that actually some of the solutions for a sustainability, wind, solar, electric vehicles, are the kinds of strategies that can also now bring us energy security. So if anything, I think the crisis that we've seen in the last six months may uh, give us
0: further impetus towards uh, a transition
1: than actually taking us backwards.
0: I suppose, you know, there, there has been, you know, some sort of political sort of uncertainty around the, around sort of net zero, hasn't there? And I think, you know, I'm mean, in the UK, you know, we've seen some sort of quite high level sort of, you know, discussions around net zero, around around kind of cutting carbon and people sort of seem to see it as a sort of a, a one versus the other, don't they? Is there a way that we can meet that sort of short term sort of energy demand for, you know, say, you know, the 150 BCM of, of gas that, that Russia supplied into Europe? Can we meet that in the short term but also sort of match it with this with this move into you know more environmentally friendly you know sustainably uh productive ways of, of generating energy.
1: Well, I think I think actually your 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 question highlights a very important point about the energy crisis that we all find ourselves in. You know, fundamentally, uh the reason why prices are going through the roof is not because there's suddenly this increased hunger for oil and gas around the world. Right? The reason why the prices are going through the roof is because there's a huge supply of oil and gas that many countries are no longer willing to buy. The 155 BCM of gas that Russia was supplying to Europe, Europe no longer wants to buy. And so there is a scramble to try to replace uh, the supply that they were getting. But it's not as if there's a 155 BCM of new demand that's only appeared out of nowhere. So this is very much a supply crisis, not a demand crisis, if you will. And so the response to that is going to have to be some combination of, you know, near-term strategies to try to fill the gap with some additional incremental new supply, but just as importantly, strategies that begin to ratchet down on total demand so that we get to a new equilibrium without having to go back to Russian supply, which for both political reasons is not going to be feasible. But frankly, the fact that President Putin has chosen to use energy as a weapon, I think Probably calls into question whether Russia will ever be considered to be a reliable supplier in the future, mm. however the Ukraine crisis resolves itself.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it certainly feels like uh, it was it was a sort of a lesson in a long time kind of brewing, doesn't it? I mean I remember sort of seeing for for years the you know kind of concerns from the EU and sort of various think tanks over over dependence on on, on Russian gas, and it kind of feels like that those kind of chickens have, have come home to roost a bit, doesn't it? I suppose that there's that kind of question, isn't it? I mean in terms of the sort of the trilemma, you know we have touched on that. Sort of security of supply and we've touched on the sort of sustainability but what about the affordability right i mean i think you know obviously the a lot of the appeal of russian gas was that it was kind of you know affordable and, and cheap and it was seemed secure now we're looking at a point when gas prices are spiraling in europe and obviously that's kind of having a global impact is there a way to kind of weather this this storm of affordability because i think that kind of plays into that kind of political driver doesn't it i think when people see higher gas bills higher you know higher prices at the pump, that does feel like a sort of a direct pressure to politicians to, to do something. Yeah.
1: Well, and, and actually, there is a, there's a huge opportunity, I think, in front of us to, you know, square this circle or to address this trilemma, as you put it. Earlier this spring, the International Energy Agency talked about the fact that there's 200 billion cubic meters of gas that goes to waste every year through venting, flaring, and leaks around the world. So if the question is, is where do we find 155 BCM of new supply to meet existing demand, maybe we need to look no further than the amount of gas that we're already pulling out of the ground around the world, but currently wasting through flaring, through venting, and through leaks. We believe that a substantial chunk of that 200 BCM can be brought to market in the next you know, 24 to 36 months with a positive net present value and with little or no need to build new infrastructure to deliver it. And so as we think about how we address the current energy crisis, we would argue that the first place that we should be looking uh, is simply to make better use of the gas that we're already pulling out of the ground. That's not only going to be uh, the quickest. A solution it's going to be the most economic solution and candidly it's also going to be the most environmentally sound solution because every every unit of gas that we throw up into the atmosphere is methane and methane drives more than 25 percent of the warming our planet is experiencing right now uh, and so every time we take steps to reduce venting flaring and leaks we're actually taking steps to slow the rate of climate change it's a true win-win.
0: Sure. And I, I suppose, you know, looking at this sort of, you know, energy trilemma, I and mean, obviously, you know, given the, the events, you know, since sort of February, it's, it's obviously Europe is kind of dominating a lot of the discussion around sort of geopolitics and, and and how energy kind of plays into that. Obviously, there are, you know, other parts of the world that they're also playing in important, you know, roles. Day job, I, I sort of, uh, I spend a lot of time looking at it, looking at Africa and the, and the sort of how the energy trilemma plays out there, right? And I think, so a lot of what you're saying about, about flaring and, and venting, you know, really kind of hits home, looking at Nigeria, for instance, instance, and, and the amount of, of gas that's flared in, in the Niger Delta is extraordinary for a country that is short of gas, that is short of power, even. There's sort of, this sort of trilemma challenge. How does it work in different different regions, right? I mean, because obviously, you know, I, I, I sit here in the UK and I, you know, I have concerns about paying my gas bill, but I think, you know, for the 600 million people in sub-Saharan Africa who don't have access to electricity, who don't have access to a fridge, you know, let alone power to charge their mobile phone, how do we make that work in a way that is fair, is equitable, is just, but at the same time, you know, does all these things like, you know, achieving net zero.
1: And you're raising an an incredibly important point that doesn't get enough attention, right? Which is that as we um, work to serve the energy needs of the world, uh, we need to make sure that we're doing it cleanly, but we also need to make sure that we're doing it equitably. Look, what I often say to folks in industry is if you take a step back and you look at all of the various analyses that have been done, whether it's the work of the IPCC or the work of the International Energy Agency, there's no credible scenario for achieving the goals of the Paris Agreement, staying below. 1.5 C, there's no credible scenario to do that that doesn't involve fundamentally less use of oil and gas into the future than we're currently using today. But it's also true that when you take a step back and you look at those various analyses that reducing our use of fossil fuels is different from saying we get rid of all fossil fuels. And part of the reason why a climate safe future may include fossil fuels is because different regions of the world are at different points in their energy transition journey. The fundamental fact is is that we have a lot more uh, wealth and degrees of freedom in North America and Europe to do deeper decarbonization than other parts of the world that are first looking to transition away from the use of biomass uh, to heat homes and to cook food. And so in Sub-Saharan Africa, in parts of Southeast Asia. Fossil fuel use actually is part of the energy transition now and perhaps into the future. One of the things that we need to be cognizant of is that um, as we look to replace that 10550 BCM of gas in Europe, that we're doing it in ways that don't involve simply taking resource from sub-Saharan Africa and bringing it all into Europe.
0: I suppose it's that question about how you meet sort of domestic supply, isn't it? How domestic demand even, sort of trying to make that work. Looking at the ways in which, you know, governments, industries... Who should be taking the lead, right? I mean, I think, you know, obviously there is a kind of a there's a kind of a political kind of a driver, isn't there, to both secure energy and kind of meet those net zero pledges that that a number of governments have made. But obviously the people making the making that progress who kind of actually implementing that change will be will be companies, will be industries. How do you think that should work? I mean, who should be the sort of the first mover in terms of trying to tackle the energy problems that we're talking about?
1: Well, in many parts of the world, you know, the the major energy providers are, in fact, the government themselves. I mean, one of the things that I often have to remind my colleagues in the NGO community is, is that uh, two-thirds of oil and gas production are in the hands of national oil companies that are, you know, owned by their respective states and have a responsibility to produce energy, not just for the global market, but really for uh, the benefit of uh, of the people of the countries for whom they operate. And so in many parts of the world, you know, there isn't really a dichotomy between the energy providers on the one hand and the government on the other. It's It's one conversation. But that being said, these very same governments, of course, are also charged not just with energy production, but also charged with protecting the health and environmental quality of their of their, of the, you know, the health of their people and the environmental quality of their countries. And so they have this dual responsibility. And of course, it's, it is a challenge. Um, It's not an easy thing to balance those two things. But increasingly, countries who are large energy producers are are looking to do just that. And actually, we see in some parts of the world, uh, in the Middle East in particular, where you have the national oil companies recasting themselves as national energy companies who are now looking to take Uh, you know, the revenues and the wealth that's been created by the oil economy and use it as a jumping off point for creating a more sustainable energy economy into the future. And that's a positive thing. And it's one of the reasons why we're so um, excited to be participating in the Adapak conference, because, you know, many of those uh, leading companies are present at the conference and are actually, you know, sincerely looking for Uh, Engagement around energy transition issues, and we're glad to be helpful where we can be.
0: Yeah, and I I suppose you know, looking at the uh, Adapair conference, I mean, there's there's a lot of things going on, obviously, but I think one of the things that's really striking is some of the the investigations into hydrogen and ammonia, which I think is really is a really interesting way to kind of, I suppose, retool some of the kind of historic kind of focus of the Middle East on you know the sort of the exports of oil and gas into something maybe that that, you know obviously we're going to move to increasingly and and and. It feels like it's going to play an important part. What's your take on on that sort of blue hydrogen, blue ammonia? How do you think it's going to work? Is it is it going to be a sort of a blue versus green? What what were your thoughts about uh, that in the in the Middle East?
1: Yeah. Well, again, let me let me take a step back. I said earlier in our conversation that you know to achieve the goals of the Paris Agreement to truly get to a climate stable future, we're going to have to use less oil and gas. And I think having said that, kind of. Maybe controversial statement, I need to now back it up with okay mark so what is that what does that world look like and again, I think if you if you take a step back and you look at the work of the ipCC, if you look at the work of the international Energy Agency frankly if, even if you look at some of the work that leading oil companies have done you know the, the bp 's energy analysis or shell's energy analysis, they all point in the same direction so first of all it's first it 's about energy efficiency how do you um, use energy more efficiently and f- fundamentally use less energy to do the uh, to, to to power your economy. That's number one. But number two is you're looking to uh, expand the deployment of green electricity and then use that green electricity to uh, decarbonize transportation and your building sector. And in fact, you're beginning to see that trend emerge, particularly in China in Europe, and North America with the increasing uh, deployment of electric vehicles, for example. But what we also know is, is that electricity is not gonna be able to do everything that we would like it to be able to do. When it comes to heavy transportation, so ships and aviation, uh, when it comes to heavy industry, uh, when it comes to the petrochemical industry, green electricity may be able to do some things, but it's not gonna be able to do everything there. And so that's where you need um, fuels, you need molecules to, make up the, to, to pick up the slack, if you will. Hydrogen becomes a critical feedstock in meeting that slack. There are some cases where you may use hydrogen directly as a fuel, but I think more often than not, I think what we're going to find is, is that hydrogen really becomes a feedstock into the development of the fuels of the future, whether that's green ammonia, or that's E-methanol, or that's E-kerosene. So hydrogen becomes incredibly important. And then to your point, right? Where do you get that hydrogen from? I think the best opportunities are to use green electricity to fraction water, take the hydrogen from the H2O, and then use that hydrogen in the production of E-fuels, marrying it up with, with carbon that perhaps you get from direct air capture, or you get, get from carbon air capture, or in utilization on industrial processes. So that's how we sort of think of it. Hydrogen it plays a role in what we call hard to abate sectors. So shipping, aviation and industry.
0: There's going to be some really interesting developments on there. I think in terms of sort of how we move these molecules around, it's going to be a really interesting one to watch. I think, you know, seeing how, you know, hydrogen, maybe into ammonia, but also I think in terms of, you know, people talking quite interestingly around, you know, how to move things like uh, carbon around, right? And, and I think, you know, when you're talking about those kind of combinations, it's going to be a really interesting sector to watch. We're going to take a short break, uh, Mark, and then we'll be come back uh, in just a moment. ADIPEC, the Abu Dhabi International Energy Exhibition and Conference. The world's most influential gathering of the energy industry. From the 31st of October to the 3rd of November. So, Mark, I mean, uh, looking at uh, the, you know, touching on that kind of role of ADIPEC, and obviously it feels like there's going to be a lot of people there, a lot of discussions around various parts of the energy industry. What 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 do you think uh you know that, that does for uh for the energy industry, right? What 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 is what is what do you see as being a benefit to uh to, to, to such a meeting?
1: Well, the thing that makes the Adepec conference unique. I first started going to Adipec in twenty nineteen. And, you know, frankly, when I first Came It was an eye-opener because I sort of naively assumed that I knew the oil and gas industry and that the oil and gas industry was, you know, sort of defined by the likes of, you know, Shell and BP and Exxon and Total, sort of the household names, if you will, that you see every time you pull up to the gas pump. But in fact, what I learned from being at the ADAPEC conference is, is in fact, the oil and gas industry is vast, um, that the vast majority of it is sort of owned and operated by national oil companies who themselves were uh, significant players, not only in their uh, home markets, but in the global oil and gas industry. And in fact, uh, that there was uh, a great deal more diversity, you know, culturally, politically, just in, on every metric than I had uh, than I had thought. You know, three years later, Environmental Defense Fund is now at the conference in in full force. We'll have over twenty um, EDF staff there. We'll have our own booth um, on the trade show floor. We'll even be bringing our uh, methane sat project to the to the conference. And it's and and the reason why we're investing that kind of effort is because it really represents an unparalleled opportunity to engage the diversity of the global industry in a serious conversation about not only the need for a rapid energy transition, but to talk about the key strategies that are going to achieve that. Methane reductions in the near term, but then um, important technologies like like hydrogen and its role in hard to abate sectors, Uh, CCUS and the ability to capture CO2 to not only decarbonize existing industrial processes, but to create the feedstock for those e-fuels of the future. And in fact, how do you jumpstart the process of of developing those e-fuels? How do you marry customers with producers so that we get rapid deployment of e-fuels, which is what we need uh, not only for the benefit of the environment, but as we were talking about earlier, right, we need these new fuels to help diversify our energy supply because our existing supplies are proving to be very volatile um, and are proving increasingly to be, you know, tools of geopolitics, you know, unfortunately. And that that kind of uncertainty and instability is, is roiling, um, you know, global markets we need diversification just as quickly as we can get it. And uh, so I think for all of these reasons, the Adapak conference is uh, is an incredible opportunity to have those conversations and to advance these
0: ideas. It feels also quite sort of notable, doesn't it? I mean, I suppose just, you know, thinking about uh, COP, right? I mean, obviously, it's kind of, you know, the sort of the big, you know, we've been t- talking about sort of sustainability. And, and obviously, you know, we had uh, COP26 last year in Glasgow. And it feels that like the world has changed since then. But also, it feels quite uh, interesting and, and notable, I suppose, that, you know, we're going into, uh, so COP27 is going to be in Shamal Sheikh in, in Egypt, just after Adepec, I believe. And then COP28 is going to be in the UAE next year. I mean, looking at just sort of the ways in which those kind of, discussions may be different. What do you think COP in Egypt, people have said it's going to be a sort of an African COP, right? And I think, which is, I think it's quite an interesting idea. And I think it kind of touches on some of those, those different ways of looking at that sort of energy trilemma. What do you think we might sort of see play out there?
1: Well, I, I, so I think that's exactly right. I mean, so first of all, uh, I, I think it is significant that this next COP coming up in November is being held in Egypt. I I think for two reasons. One is, is because of course, you can't talk about decarbonizing the world's economy without talking about energy. And as we've been talking about, you can't talk about energy without talking about access and affordability alongside sustainability. And of course, access and affordability have been long-standing challenges in Africa. Let's not pretend that energy poverty is the result of energy transition. In fact, energy poverty has been with us for many decades, all through the era of fossil fuels. So actually energy transition becomes the opportunity to now finally address festering energy equity issues or at least I'd like to think so and it is completely appropriate to have that kind of conversation in Egypt on the African continent where those issues are so clearly in you know relevant and in focus i think it's also important too because when you talk about uh, the need to decarbonize you talk about you know hard to decarbonize effort uh, as sectors well shipping is one of those sectors and of course shipping is critical to the economy of Egypt being the, the country that operates and maintains the, the the Suez Canal, which is one of our major shipping routes in the world. Um, so for both of those reasons, I think it's really significant to be having these conversations in Egypt. I think it's also really significant that the next COP is going to be in the UAE, because again, the UAE is a global energy powerhouse. But the UAE is, one, is, is an example of one of those countries that I talked about earlier, um, that is actively looking to take the wealth that's accrued as a consequence of oil and gas development, and now begin to reshape, use that wealth to reshape the economies to be much more about, you know, the energy of the future. So I think it's the UAE has a significant role to play, uh, not just as the host of the COP, but really as kind of modeling the kind of, uh, you know, reinvestment and transition that we would hope all major energy producing countries would be actively engaged in 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 in
0: doing. Mm, yeah, I'm really interested to see how things play out at uh, particularly in in, in Sharm el Sheikh in in November I think there's a there's a perception in 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 many parts of Africa that uh Europe and North America sort of dictate terms for uh, energy generation. It's it's becoming more and more of an issue and I think the ways in which uh, there is not finance available for things like you know gas fired power plants for instance in 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 africa and, and other parts of the world is is a real challenge and i think to i think there's a question about of sort of moral authority as much as anything else i think you know the idea of talking about sort of moving to net zero uh, but not sort of tackling this problem of of how you also give power to people uh, I think is is a real challenge, and I think the, the the risk that we run, as you say, is is that kind of question around biomass, isn't it? The the numbers are, are hard to come by, but there there are there, there is a, millions of people die through burning sort of you know bad cooking fuels essentially every year, and these, these are very preventable deaths, and I think. The fact that we have not managed to do anything with that is a sort of a stain on, you know, frankly, the sort of the international communities and aspirations. One of my hopes is that the people can can come together in, in Egypt and, and, and really sort of try and uh, think about that in a more sustainable way, in a way that's fair and equitable, in a way that tackles those those, those problems of people dying. right? And I think that's that's not an abstract question.
1: Uh, uh, no, absolutely, for sure. And if you think about the interrelationship between energy and water, for example, it's the same it, you know there 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 are parallels there too. Access to energy is is what enables access to you know clean and adequate water supply. And energy poverty very often goes hand in hand with scarcity of water supply. So so there's any number of intersections here between public health and public welfare on the one hand, and access to energy on the other. But to be clear, right? You you said earlier you know access to capital in the developing world is critical um, for all types of energy projects, right? So it's not just natural gas-fired power plants, which maybe might make sense in certain circumstances, but it's also true for for large-scale solar development. It's also true for large-scale wind development. And so we need to solve for the access to capital issue um, for uh, the energy future of the developing world generally. It's not specific to fossil fuels. It's it's all it's all energy resources because because I think what we've learned certainly we we see this in the United States, certainly we see this in Europe, is oftentimes the cheapest new sources of energy are, in fact, uh, the renewables, the solar, the wind. Let's make sure that in our push to make energy access in the developing world, that we're not predetermining or condemning those parts of the world to use technologies that we in the more developed parts of the world are already beginning to discard in favor of better, cheaper alternatives. Let's make sure those better, cheaper alternatives are available to everybody. Because as you point out, right, air pollution is a real thing. You know, the reason why China has been working so hard at developing renewable energy is in part because they want to be responsible as it relates to climate. But let's not kid ourselves. The primary uh, driver there is to improve urban air quality. And the reason why they have been moving so so quickly to electric vehicles is to improve urban air quality. Well, so in the name of improving urban air quality in sub Saharan Africa, let's make sure that those countries have also have access to the same technologies that China's using to address its air quality, renewables, and electric vehicles that Western Europe is using, that North America is using. Let's make sure that those technologies are available in sub-Saharan Africa well, as well. That, I think, is uh, a critical challenge.
0: Certainly. I, I think I think that's a, that's a really fair point. And I think, yes, as you say, that the transfer of technology could be a real game changer. And I think, yes, absolutely, it's, it's a really good point to say, look, let's just provide energy the best that we can right I mean, because as you say energy is an enabler it, it it lets people live happier more productive more healthy lives in all those ways and I think that's that's a really fair point um but just as a sort of a final question you know obviously we're sort of looking ahead we're sort of talking about datapec we're talking about cop we're talking about the next cop if, the, if you could change one sort of part of the uh, the of the of the energy world one one aspect one problem what's sort of top of your list what what, what what would you look to change in the next uh, say 12 months?
1: Well, I I think that I think the single biggest challenge facing the global oil and gas industry, the global energy industry is, um, how you make significant progress in the near term. You know, there are many uh, countries and companies that have now enunciated, you know, net zero by 2050 targets, which is great. You have to, you have to have a sense as to where you're trying to go if you're going to get anywhere. Right. But I think what the world is looking for, what civil society is looking for, frankly, what the kids around the world are looking for is evidence that people are doing stuff now. You know, we've we've not only lived through a chaotic year in terms of geopolitics. Right. We've lived through a chaotic year in terms of climate. If you think about the floods in Pakistan, if you think about the, the droughts uh, that we've experienced in Europe, if you think about the wildfires that we've experienced in the American West, if you think about, you know, um, the, the, you know the, the drought that it has existed in China, um, we're seeing the climate crisis bear down on us in very tangible terms. And what this is telling all of us or should be telling all of us is that we don't have a moment to lose in terms of making real reductions right now. So it is great that everyone is focused on what the end game needs to look like, where we need to be in 2050 or where we need to be in 2060. It's not going to make a bit of difference if we're not focused on making reductions today. That's why you know reducing methane emissions from the oil and gas industry becomes so incredibly important because those methane That methane pollution is driving 25% of the warming that we're experiencing right now. It is also a tremendous waste of an existing energy resource. So it is a golden opportunity for the industry to make a material difference on all the things that you and I just talked about. Affordability, um, access to energy, and sustainability. So uh, the methane opportunity, but what else can the industry be doing? How quickly can we be moving to the kind of uh, sustainable aviation fuels that truly are next generation, uh, that don't involve plowing under our forests or our farm or or, or our food supply in the name of aviation? Um, you know, what can we do um, to advance uh, the deployment of um, CCUS? in ways that can begin to capture the CO2 from industrial processes today um, so that we avoid the worst consequences of climate change tomorrow. Those are the kinds of things that, we'll, that, that, that we need to be talking
0: about. Well, fantastic. It's a good note to end on, I think, Mark. We're nearly out of time. Thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts. I'm looking forward to seeing you at Adepec, I will swing by and we can uh, catch up and uh, talk more uh, sustainability. Thank you to our listeners as well. Uh, and please do let us know what you think about the ideas we've raised here. You can email outloud at energyvoice.com. Uh, and if you'd like to be part of the conversation and share your story with the energy industry, you can email outloud at energyvoice.com. I'd also love to take this opportunity to remind you that the Energy Voice team has a regular podcast. So please search for Energy Voice Out Loud wherever you get your podcasts to get this free essential briefing every Friday. At the same time, I'd love to give you a gentle nudge to register for for EFRADPEC. According to the latest stats, I saw there's something like 150,000 people due to attend, 12,000 delegates, 1,200 speakers, something like 54 NOCs and IOCs. It's going to be a big show. So this is the uh, first episode of the Road to Adipex series. Uh, the second episode will drill down further into the questions and some of the solutions, hopefully, to Europe's energy crisis. So please keep an ear out for that. But for today, I've been Ed Reed. Thank you for listening.
1: Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com